This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Well, let's, let's start with the simple things. Um, appreciation for being alive and aware. Appreciation Appreciation for being supported by a community which cultivates stillness. Appreciation for being able to speak with a group of curious and gentle people. Appreciation for being alive and aware. Um, many times here at Jokoji, I've uh, received drop-in guests, people who, through one reason or another, find their way down to Jokoji. And I give them a tour, and I describe our Sunday program. And then I, and I mention the Dharma talk. And uh, they might say, well, what's, what, what, are they, what do you talk about at the Dharma talk? And I remember myself saying many times, I said, well, you know, we talk about the, the big questions, you know, the, the, the big stuff. Like, what's going on? What is going on? And, uh, and what should I do? And it also occurs to me that we... Uh, we sometimes we sometimes also talk about the history of the Dharma, and and by that I mean who said what, and 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 the context from which they were speaking. And there are writings that that come up time and time again here that are many centuries old, and they still carry a fresh spark, a fresh spark of enlightenment to them. At this temple, we often re-examine the words of people named Dogen and people named Coben. And when we look at their words, we often find illumination. And it seems that there's a lot of overlap between the big questions that they were looking at and the big questions that we look at time and time again. And this feels to me to be both encouraging and also very humbling. 
Uh, and for me, though, you know, regarding history of the Dharma, it's, it's been very important to not just to look for inspiration in what I might call the greatest hits of the past, but to stay on the lookout for actions and utterances right here and right now that carry themselves a fresh spark. Maybe it's an unexpected kindness or an unexpected bit of playfulness. And these things that we get to witness in our lives, will these be remembered centuries later? And will the names of the people that we witness be remembered centuries later? Probably not. Most of us arise, and eventually we lie back down into the mud, and the words and deeds of our specific life, they quickly fade away from the world's memory. I think it would be healthy if we were to be, if we were to more often appreciate and celebrate those nameless people who in some sense left no trace. And uh, as you listen to the, our service, we have a part of the service which is the dedication. And sometimes there's a list of names read and those are our historical figures. But listen for the space between those names. and. Uh, Maybe bring to mind all the people that were there at the same time that were doing small kindnesses and were supporting the people who became the names that were remembered. This is something I try to do. seems to help. But uh, back to the big questions themselves. What is going on? Or I might state it as, what is the true nature of this awareness? And then the other question, well, what shall, what shall I do? I might state it that also, state that differently and might say, how shall I navigate the moments where I feel that I must choose what to do next? So what are these big questions? What are these great matters? Well, if you're curious about these great matters, watch for yourself what happens as you keep these questions in your mind. Keep that curiosity alive. Be gently and kindly noticing what you observe in the ever-present now. What is going on? Well, here's something of a mantra that, that helps me. We are sunshine and water and dust, having a look around before we return to the sky. Maybe that's all that's going on. We are creatures having a spiritual experience. And we are spirit having a creature experience. 
Does anyone have a tissue they might pass me? Ah. Oh, perfect. Thank you, sir. Ah, look at an entire box. Thank you. Thanks to you both. Well, and I, I remind myself also that when we talk, when we try to talk about these great matters, that it's always somewhat incomplete, the talking. Because we, you know, the, the thing that gets us to talk is we, we're always starting from some kind of direct experience. Maybe it's a sensation inside. Maybe it's something that we're seeing happen out around us. And then, you know, because of the nature of talking, we have to take that direct experience and reduce it to some sequence of words and cultural signals and hope that we can create a narrative that we can pass to, to someone else that's a useful substitute for their own direct experience. There was a, a lovely man here a few weeks ago who is the, um, he's the sewing teacher um, up at the, the Zen Center in San Francisco. And he gave a lovely talk, and one of the things he talked about was, uh, you know, the history of sewing, the history of the robes. And he talked about how, uh, he sort of mused aloud about, oh, it seems sort of odd how we take a perfectly nice, continuous piece of fabric, and then we cut it all up in small pieces, and then we put it back together into these robes. You know, and he, and he offered this a bit of history, which is, it has to do with a long time ago when this whole business of robe sewing got started. People were gathering rags, which so they're starting off with these small pieces and scrapping them together. But that's not how we are. That's not how things are anymore. You know, you can go to a store and get a wide bolt of cloth that you, you, just, you just put it right on and cover yourself. But we go to, uh, there seems to be this culture, this tradition of cutting it into small pieces and then putting it back together. And I see some kind of, um, that may be symbolic of what we're forced to do over and over with our words. We, we take a perfectly good piece of cloth, which is our direct experience. We cut it up into little pieces, which is kind of a reductionist thing that we must do to find the words and the sequence of words. And then we, we try to present it, you know, as a, something that's going to be useful, try to sew it all back together to create a narrative. So that's one of the things that gets in the way of completeness when we try to talk about the great matters or talk about anything. And another thing that I feel is, I keep in mind, is um, when we talk about the great matter of, you know, what is going on or you know, the way that I think to state that is um, what is the true nature of this awareness? Well, the true nature of our awareness is fundamentally rooted in this moment, in this unfolding moment, this ever-present and ever-changing now. But words themselves, the words that we have to use to talk about it, they're fundamentally rooted in the past on both the sending and receiving ends. 
For me to choose the words I'm going to use, I first have to search my memory, search my conditioned and trained mind for the right sequence, and then for you to make meaning of what I'm trying to broadcast. You have to use your memory of You have to use your memory, and this moves some part of my awareness, and it moves some part of your awareness from what's actually unfolding right now into your memory, into the past. And this is it's a bit of a distraction. It's you know, I think you've heard perhaps this story that you know the uh, the master wanted to show or direct the teacher. The master wanted to direct the student's attention to the moon, and so. Master pointed at the moon, and, and the student's eyes were left on the finger, looking at the finger. The master's gesturing towards the moon, and the student's just watching the master. What are they doing? What are they doing? The moon's hanging in the sky there, just watching the finger. Something similar goes on as we try to talk about the great matters. So this great matter regarding our true nature, it's fundamentally rooted in this particular and ever unfolding now. This now is ever present and utterly obvious. However, it can seem remarkably ephemeral when you're trying to hang a bell around its neck. Okay, so words have limitations. But let's get back to that question, what's going on? We are sunshine and water and dust having a look around before we return to the sky. So it seems simple. Why do things seem so confusing at times? Why does it seem so hard to grasp what we are, what's happening? Well, things have been changing very fast for many generations before you arrived. And they're changing even more quickly now. Especially human culture and its relationship with the landscape, with the sky, and with the sea. There's a, um, there's a school of thought in uh, evolution that's, um, that when I first heard of evolution, I wasn't told about this aspect of it. When I, when I was first taught about evolution, it was presented as this sort of um, steady, gradual movement of uh, you know, the forms of the creatures that were on this planet. The, the forms kept altering generation after generation and kept, you know, getting a little bit more refined or uh, elaborate or, or better suited to their environment. But there's an aspect of evolution that um, I heard of several years ago, which is called punctuated equilibrium. The idea in punctuated equilibrium is that there's not just this smooth, gradual progression that goes on. Every once in a while, there's something of a calamity or some a huge, fast shift that happens in the way things are evolving. And this huge shift takes a long while for things to sort of get used to what just happened. And the huge shifts might be things like, you know, a comet, a giant comet striking the Earth. Or it may be one of the creatures became so successful on the planet that it started to fundamentally change 
the chemistry of the ocean, you know, the fundamental chemistry of the ocean, or things of this nature, giant punctuations. So these punctuations happen, and then evolution tries to, there's a long series of, um, of uh, adjustments that go on after that punctuation, and they take a long time, it takes a long time for things to settle back down. Well, I think in terms of humans and people, we've, there are a lot of significant punctuations that we've undergone as a species that we sort of take for granted. And I think in a very real sense, we, when I say we, I mean both we, us, the humans, and the landscape that we live in, and that of course is fundamentally ourselves also, um, we're still getting used to some really pretty ancient punctuations. Punctuations that we now take for granted. Um, like humans learning how to preserve and store food. Like humans learning how to cultivate plants through a combination of sowing seeds and weeding out the plants they didn't want and diverting water to the fields. Punctuation is like learning how to control fire, how to build shelter, how to domesticate and harness animals. These things all had deeply profound impacts on how we are in the world. And I think we in the landscape are still reeling from these things. The fast changes associated with each one of these things are still unfolding. So things are confusing. It's hard to tell, you know, what was the source of what kind of um, uh, bit of chaos. I've got a few more things on the list I'd like to add. Uh, how to create, so a punctuation, I think an important punctua punctuation was how to create and transmit stories of events and people who are not here and now. I recently read a, read a, a, a book that suggested this, this event, this cognitive revolution, happened perhaps only about 70,000 years ago. This this thing that we can do, which is tell stories of things that aren't happening now and of people that aren't here right now. It's not that old compared to how old this forest is. We're still figuring out how to adjust to these things. Other things like how to make and wear clothing how to read and write, how to manage the sewage that's generated in city environments. We take these things for granted, but they're still having a, oh, what's the phrase? A clamorous tide of unforeseen consequences upon the landscape and upon ourselves. How to build and used, use wheeled carts and roads 
how to navigate and move ships over the open seas, how to mass produce writing and pictures, how to burn fuels in order to perform physical work, how to quantitatively, precisely, and repeatedly measure and control things like shape, size, temperature, brightness, loudness, chemical composition, etc. How to communicate nearly instantaneously over long distances. How to fly. How to deliver cataclysmic how to deliver cataclysmic shock waves, fire, and radiation to any point on the planet. These are huge punctuations, and we're still trying to figure out what to do with, I think, all of them. And the rate at which these new things arise seems to be increasing. When I was very young and starting to have questions about, you know, what's going on? Who are we? My, my parents directed me towards a very popular book at the time called The Naked Ape. It was written by a British um, zoologist. And he took a look at the human creature and spoke of the human creature as a zoologist would speak of any other animal and uh, characterized. I think it was helpful to me to make me feel more integrated with the rest of the world to that sort of connection with all the other creatures, you know, to, to think of myself as just a naked ape that had an incredible bag of tools at his disposal and a, and a strangely large tribe that was figuring out how to navigate things. So I'm going to try a little rhetorical trick here, a, little, a stunt. I guess it's a stunt. I'll ask you to humor me. But given this idea that we're you know, naked apes, fundamentally, you know, we're just creatures that have arisen on the landscape like the other creatures, I'd like to revisit that list of punctuations that I just said and, and frame it slightly different with this idea that we are innate, that we are that we're apes, that we're naked apes. So big punctuations that came. Pantry apes, water carrying apes, farmer apes, fire apes cooking apes, storytelling apes, house-building apes, clothed apes, literate apes, city apes, wheel apes, road apes, sailing apes, engine apes, Science apes, radio apes, flying apes, nuclear apes. I think punctuated equilibrium has been a useful idea for me looking at my own life too. Our personal experiences I think can be characterized this way 
You know, what are, we have these watershed moments in our lives, and there's a, th- those are punctuations, and there's sort of a, a clamorous tide of unforeseen consequences after these punctuations in our personal lives. And they take a long, it takes a long time to get to used to these punctuations, you know, and it's hard to know how long the bell that was hit at that per- particular punctuation, how long is that particular bell ringing in your being as you try to navigate the world that continues to come at you day after day. So personal punctuations are things like uh, injuries, illnesses, heartbreaks, discoveries, acquisitions, deaths, births, creation and dissolution of partnerships, moving to a new location, in terms of punctuations, maybe something terrible was done to you. Maybe you did something terrible to someone else. Maybe you betrayed yourself. Injured ape. Sick ape. Heartbroken ape. Epiphany ape. Grieving ape. Parenting ape. Married ape. Divorced ape, perpetrator ape, traumatized ape, self-sabotaging ape. And in our personal lives, um, in my personal life, if I don't take the time and find the resources to, to process and integrate these punctuations, I can end up feeling sort of perpetually overwhelmed because I don't know what's shoving me around. You know, what, what are the bells that are still ringing that are, what's going on, you know? It really helps to find the time to, um, and the resources. For me, resources have included uh, a few good therapists through my life. Um, Sobriety has been a huge resource in sorting these punctuations out for me. So, circumstances often can lead us to situations where we feel overwhelmed. And there's another sort of, another thing I want to offer um, regarding the broad strokes of, of us naked apes. This is an idea that I was exposed to several years ago and it, it became kind of a pivotal thing for me. It, I think it was one of the strong motivators for me to leave the professional life I was in and go looking. So, 
there was this economist who was studying his surroundings in uh, 19th century England. This guy's name was Jevons. And Jevons was, uh, his specialty was keeping track of coal consumption in England in the 19th century. And he had the great fortune to um, be in a very interesting time in terms of coal consumption because things were changing kind of rapidly. And one of the things that happened was um, some very clever monkeys, some very clever apes, became much better at building uh, engines that burned coal to pump water and to run mills and things. The, the efficiency of the coal-fired motors and engines dramatically increased. You know, they just like tenfold or a hundredfold. It was an incredible increase. And the, the economist Jevons said to himself, well, with all these great increases in efficiency, we should expect to see that we wouldn't need to burn as much coal, that our consumption would go down. He found the opposite. He found that as efficiencies got better, the overall consumption actually jumped dramatically. Why is that? puzzled me a lot too and it also made me feel like god it's hopeless for you know in, in my life in my professional life that I was in at the time I was part of the business of improving efficiencies what good is it going to do if every time we improve efficiency the overall consumption goes up and why is that true well I think it, it may be that prevailing cultures that we've all been conditioned by have at their roots some very expansionist um, tendencies. And when efficiencies, new efficiencies arise, that means new capacity is, is created also. If you have a particular resource and it used to be able to cover all your bases and then some innovation makes it so that this resource can be stretched a lot further well, the, the collective creature stretches further on the landscape. It creates more factories. It creates more little engines to burn the fuel. It's a puzzling thing. It's something to keep in mind. And I also noticed, as, as, as I you know, noodled on this for years, that I had a very similar tendency personally also, especially when I was younger, Whenever some capacity would free up, whenever I would find that things had changed in my landscape and I had some extra time, like maybe I had given up on this project or something had changed, whenever that extra time would appear, I would fill it with something. Oh, I got this extra time. I got to fill it with something. I'm not so sure that's wise. And um, I'm not sure that was wise. And, and these days... When extra capacity arises, I, I take a good long look at how I might just do nothing with that extra capacity. Why I might just maybe rest a bit more. Maybe, maybe just rest a bit more. Maybe be, be a bit more still. Okay, so 
So what to do about these things? These are th here's your, some things I remind myself of in the face of these things. Get in touch with your heart. Hogan, get in touch with your heart. It'll help you slow down. It'll help you slow down more comfortably. And listen closely to the hearts of those around you. Uh, practice find practice finding completeness in just being. Zazen practice is clearly very helpful for that for me. What else can I do? I remind myself to meet what comes to you with warmth and compassion and to reach out with warmth and compassion and to do it in a way that creates healthy and stable boundaries. This is a difficult balance sometimes, but it's an important balance to meet with warmth and kindness, but to also pay attention to healthy boundaries. Because some of us apes have somewhat extroverted and expansionist tendencies. And in the absence of clear limits, those kind of apes can run a bit roughshod over the more sensitive and introverted apes. What else? What else to do? Um, often I'll, I'll check in on my practices and what I'm choosing to do with my time. And I ask, if what I'm doing isn't supporting my patience and kindness with myself and with those around me, maybe I should consider making an adjustment to what I'm doing. And I remind myself that all of life is a balance. All of life is a balance of inhibition and expression, of growth and decay, of birth and death. And I'm a balance between these things. I think it may be merely a habit of my mind, the mind that's, that I've been conditioned to have, merely a habit that I, I tend to associate um, joy with things like expression and growth and birth, and that I associate sadness with things like inhibition, decay, and death. And I remind myself to notice when joy and sadness are actually present and what feelings in me are actually present as circumstances unfold around me, rather than me looking for the kind of feeling that I think would be appropriate to this circumstance.
Um, I asked you to humor me once earlier in the talk, and I'd like to ask you to humor me again on doing a bit of a visualization. Um, and this is towards the question, what is going on? And the restatement, what is the true nature of our awareness? What are we? What am I? This visualization helps me a bit with that. So I'd like to try to guide you through something of a, a visualization. So please, yeah, if, if you've got the capacity to indulge me, that would be great. Um, so I invite you to close your eyes and get yourself grounded. You know, refamiliarize yourself with your body, where you are right now. The pressure of your knees on the mat or your feet on the floor. The feeling of gravity pulling your body down on your seat. Maybe gently um, sway your torso a little bit. Get used to this place that your particular awareness is occupying in this vast universe. Now, keeping your eyes closed and now move, move your awareness or just imagine, imagine your surroundings. We're in this, we're, we're next to other people. We're in the Zendo. And the wind is moving outside the Zendo. There are trees. The leaves are moving in the wind. And Peter's Creek is in the little ravine just a few yards downhill from us and it flows. Let's follow it. It flows down and meets another creek and that creek meets Pescadero Creek. Thank you, John. And Pescadero Creek flows out into the ocean. So let's take our awareness out to imagining the ocean. And imagine that, oh, how that ocean, that huge body of water, it's, it encompasses this whole globe that we're on. And above the globe, there are clouds. And on the globe and in the water, there are an incredible variety of creatures and plants. And there's a vast sky above and around our globe. Our globe and its sky are moving around a star, and our star is in a big cloud of stars, and that cloud of stars is one cloud amongst millions and millions of clouds of stars. So let your awareness just sort of freely range around 
all these things that I've mentioned, you know, the vastness of the galaxy, all the creatures on the planet, and the creature that we first started with, the one that's sitting on the cushion and feeling the pressure of gravity, move back out and to the forest and to the creek. So let your awareness sort of expand. Take in all these things that are part of what we know is the greater world and the universe. And for me in this exercise, what I might do next is keep in mind all of the, the vastness, all of the seas and the sky and the mountains and the zendo. And just see if I can um, let, let that one little place in all this vastness, all the vastness, this one little place where I started, where I, th where I thought I was, where I thought my boundaries were, let that just fade away and, and look at the question again, what am I? What are we? And something that's helped my practice a lot is to accept that what I am, what we are fundamentally, is everything other than what I usually think of as me, as myself. I'm the banging door. Imagine everything in creation and just to gently let that one tiny infinitesimal little place where I my conditioned mind thinks I am. Let that just fade away. Let that blur on out. And I'm still here. We're still here. That's what we are. That's what I am. That helps me a lot. In, um, in and I'm going to continue a bit. In, in the Zazen that I was taught. As I sit, I often put my awareness, I use my will to put my awareness back to my breath, to just experience that breath. Well, I'd like to invite you to consider something different. You know, I'm used to thinking of, I'm used to thinking of regularly, my breath is that my body is my, my, this body that I'm used to thinking of pushes air out and then air comes back in when I inflate my lungs. But if I can jump back a moment ago to where I had this glimmer of what I really am is everything besides my body and go back to examining the breath that my awareness is aware of. And think of it slightly differently. Think of the inhalation that I'm used to experiencing. I, I sometimes think of it as, well, maybe that's just me. And in this case, me being 
everything and all of creation besides this tiny little infinitesimal blurry point. Maybe the inhale I'm used to feeling is actually me, the whole universe, trying to and, and intending to push a little bit of wind into that one little infinitesimal blurry point. That's, so I am, the whole universe is trying to just push a little tiny bit of wind into that point. Thank you for putting a little wind into me. And as it happens, it seems that this entirety, this entire of creation intends to push wind into this one little point for some finite number of times and then then it'll stop doing that. Thank you for playing along with that. Um, the other day I was with a group of people that walked up to the ridge. We did a nice gentle walk through the forest and went up to the top of the hill. And a small group of us enjoyed standing up at the top of the ridge and uh, soaking up the landscape. And when we were, uh, when it was about time to go, and we started, people started to move a bit, and I suggested maybe we'd walk towards the pond. So as we started to get ready to leave the place we'd been together up there on the hilltop, I noticed one of us put her hands together and, and bow, just bowed to the whole landscape. And it felt so good. It felt so good to feel that, feel the appropriateness of that. And I've found myself wondering about our bowing practice how we bow to one another, and, we, and we're sort of trained to, to bow as we head into this constructed space, into this zendo, this sort of sacred space, this sort of holy space. We're, but I wonder why, why it is, why don't we bow when we head out to the holiest of places? W-H-O-L-E, holiest of places out into the big room. That's where the deep reality is, out in the big room. So I've wondered, well, why, why does this tradition have us, you know, bowing to these, you know, tiny deluded beings and having us bowing to these structures that might stick around for a few hundred years and then be gone? And, uh, but I think there's some wisdom to this bowing practice, the way it's been handed down to me. 
I think maybe the wise people that came before realized that one of our most important functions is to is to keep one another feeling valued and loved. And that's what the bowing is about. We're here to help one another through this thing, whatever it is. And the wise before us realized that showing one another that we value and love one another is very important. Why is it so important? I think because it seems this particular kind of ape that we are, with its current set of tendencies and wounds, if it doesn't feel loved and valued, it tends to create all kinds of mayhem on the landscape and in its tribe. If this my particular kind of ape, given what I've inherited and what I've been through, it seems like, you know, if, if I don't feel valued and loved, if I feel lonely or otherwise incomplete, I'm likely to cause a little mayhem, maybe just even towards myself, you know, to not take care of myself. So bowing towards one another is helpful to me. I know from my own experience in doing work with, uh, I'm so curious about what that is. You know, I'll bet, it, I'll bet it's just a window surging in and out of its uh, jam. We're so, such easily distracted apes. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, bowing, back to bowing. Um, I know from my own experience and work and witnessing other people working that uh, I have many different internal parts to my psyche. And I have various habits regarding which parts I'm comfortable with and which parts I'm not so comfortable with. Some of my parts um, make me so uncomfortable that if I'm not careful, I might even deny their existence. For example, I'm not angry. And I remind myself to bow to these parts when they arise in me, whenever I meet them. We're here to get, we're here to help one another get through this thing, whatever it is. got a poem I'd like to read um, and it has to do with sacredness and holiness a moment ago I I wondered why we don't bow to the whole the holiness when we step outside of the zendo and this uh, this poem I think is uh, has to do with change inevitable change everything changes everything dies accepting this is super important so I'll read the words that 
I'll read the words. You will lose everything. Your money, your power, your fame, your success, perhaps even your memory. Your looks will go. Loved ones will die. Your own body will eventually fall apart. Everything that seems permanent is absolutely impermanent and will be smashed. Experience will gradually, or not so gradually, strip away everything that it can strip away. Waking up meaning, means facing this reality with open eyes and no longer turning away. Right now, we stand on sacred and holy ground. For that which has not been lost, I'm sorry, for that which will be lost, has not yet been lost. And realizing this is the key to unspeakable joy. Whoever or whatever is in your life right now has not yet been taken away from you. This may sound obvious, but really knowing it is the key to everything, the why and how and wherefore of existence. Impermanence, impermanence has already rendered everything and everyone around you so deeply holy and significant and worthy of your heartbreaking gratitude. Loss has already transfigured your life into an altar. That was Jeff Foster. I've got a couple of other thoughts, short ones, that I've gleaned from writings, other people's writings. It's a pair of things that came from a, a 20th century French writer who was an aviator also, early aviator. And he wrote a book that was very influential to me when I was younger, a, little, a book called The Little Prince. He said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. He also said, perfection is achieved not when there is nothing more to add, but when there is nothing left to take away. Um, thank you, dear people. Thank you, dear Dharma apes. Um, if anything has arisen, or you would like to talk, anyone want to say anything? Ah, Karen. Uh, a lot, a lot had arisen. First of all, I just like to say that it was a real privilege to hear this talk um, first time. 
authority speak and it was a real privilege. And the way you started also very deeply resonated with me by saying that um, let's, let's start with appreciating that we are alive and aware. And that's something I felt um, this week actually. So it, it, was, it was a wild coincidence that you started that way and, and mm-hmm. a real privilege to hear that. Additionally, a couple of things um, stood out to me. The question that you asked, so I have a comment on that and then a question for myself. The comment was um, that you started with, during the talk, the big theme was what is going on and what is the fundamental nature of awareness. Mm-hmm. And it led me to think, that isn't it just that? that that the fundamental nature of awareness is what is going on. That, mm. that awareness wants to be aware of what is going on. Mm. That's, that's it. That's it. That, that is it. Core of it. And And how much we are peace with, how much we are at peace with not knowing what is outside of our sphere of what is going on. And then the question I wanted to ask was uh, regarding memory. I much appreciated today when, uh, when Mike, I noticed the space between the words and I much appreciated that and even much appreciated the historical figures mm-hmm. in the chant. Um, and I much appreciated you saying uh, <coughs> that we should remember the ones which the world forgets but the question that arose was that world th- the fact that the world remembers the word the word world is also just a word mm. and and remembering is also matters to who remembers so who does it why does it matter that somebody is remembered and who does it matter to? Yeah. Um, uh, that's wonderful. Thank you, Karen. exists with a fundamental tension between the awareness of the creature and awareness of the the needs and desires of the societal creature that we're part of, the culture that um, that we carry the reason we know of these people of the past is because part of what we are is we echo the thoughts and the gestures of our culture the culture is itself an organism that somehow exists upon our carcasses and there's part of us that is just 
it is just a fancy bag of water moving around the landscape and shoving things through ourselves to stay alive. And that part of us is always in a bit of a dynamic tension with um, with the the stories, yeah, the unifying stories that allow us to coordinate our efforts and work together and feel like we're feel like and be part of a functioning organism. That's what arose in me as you were asking your question. Remind me if there's something that's... Does that help? It, it shines the light on what you have been saying. But what I was trying to convey was, is it, through this question, that is it, should it be bothered, should it matter? Throw away the word should. It's clear that we do remember some things, and some things are forgotten, and that's okay. Um, it's okay. And I don't know the pattern. Um, and I don't know how to choose which things need to be echoed and which things don't certainly don't know with my mind, but sometimes I can tell with my heart when, when I see something, when I, when I personally witness something, and I can see myself, maybe it's a kind gesture or a bit of humor that came right when I needed to not feel so tense. Um, maybe it's a turning word that got me to re-examine my assumptions about what I should or should not be doing. Again, throw away the word should. Try it anyway. That's always helpful to me, is when I find myself wondering about should. Keep the curiosity alive, get rid of the word should, and be curious about, well, here's how it is. Wow, hmm, what's it feel like? What's it smell like? It's my second try. Uh, thank you, first of all, for everything that you that you shared. Um, listening to both of you and also my own um, thinking. Uh, as I was driving up here today, I was actually thinking about lineage and sc different schools and the way that the teachings have developed over over many centuries. And so uh, the fact that you brought that up was interesting to me. But what I would just share related to this conversation is that um, sometimes people friends, I try to really get them to recognize the fact that, that we are uh, insignificant and ex though essential aspects of everything that, that is. And, and, and everyone who came before us, that's true for, too. So whether or not we recognize or know uh, every contributor's name to the present mm. moment or the present situation or the present teaching, uh, does not mean that, that they were any less essential 
to uh, to it. So. Why why do you think we uh, some of the names are remembered though, and echoed? I would I would I mean, the first thing I would think of is just that we need somewhere to focus. Mm. Yeah, let's go back to the breath. Exactly. <laughs> we need, we need a little direction. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, back there, please. Can, can you repeat your question you just had uh, with this gentleman here? What, do you remember why, what? Why are some names remembered and some forgotten? Mm. So um, I think what, uh, what came to mind was uh, what's important to the individual so what is the relationship? Uh, so that just came to mind. The relationship is important. Thank you. That was really great, Hogan. I really appreciate the eloquency of your skill. Uh, as far as remembering, I always, I always thought it was the little pictures in the dictionary that <laughs> wanted to remember, was a, especially in art history. You got these little pictures, and artists, you know, they tend to be a little egotistical. <laughs> they want to be. I thought you were going to say visual. They want to be remembered. <laughs> well, visual or whatever, they want to be remembered. So I remember looking at that picture and going, "Is that what I want to do?" want to be remembered to have a st one inch by inch and a half picture. <clears throat> so that was uh, eye-opening. Mm. <laughs> the other thing is I like to use the word not, it seems like a lot. So when you say, uh, what's going on? Well, what's not going on? And then uh, you say, what is the, on your line, what is the true nature of the way things are? What isn't the true nature of the way things are? Yeah. Can I riff on that? Can you? <laughs> oh, yeah. I've got my own. Oh, I get both? No, you hang on to that. Might, um, what's going on? No goings on. What's true nature? No true. No nature. Yeah, that's a wonderful lens. That's a good reminder of uh, letting go of the, uh, the rational, thinky mind. Is that whenever I think I found exactly the right word to talk about something I'm feeling, I go, oh, uh, let me find one. Uh, oh, here's a, here's a great word. Um, uh, completeness. No completeness. That's really helpful. Thanks for reminding us of that. Fun writing that all <laughs> 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 I'd like to riff just a little bit. Um, Good. Your, uh, your talk is beautiful. Thank you. Um, so, so why do we bow to each other? And uh, why don't we bow to the big one out there, the big world, the big universe? Yeah. And um, 
the way I see our bows, which I think is the me, makes it meaningful for me, is that um, the universe is bowing through me mm. to the universe within you, mm. and um, and that is why it's like even the smallest thing is worthy of being bowed to, mm-hmm. and I'm not bowing. The universe is bowing through me. So that's, I mean, sometimes it's hard to remember that's happening when we're doing our bows because they're just so habit, you know, they're a habit. But uh, that's kind of, I think, the the way I look at it. And that makes it important to me. Thank you. Thank you. I needed to hear that. That was wonderful. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.